Our scripture reading comes once more from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 10, beginning with verse 9 and continuing through the 11th chapter, verse 13. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter. But your mouth, in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment, a trouble to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps when we read that passage, you said, that is the strangest thing that we have read in our study of Revelation. And I would tell you, yes, indeed, it is. But I pray this morning that the Lord will make it plain to us. This is a powerful, as I said, this interlude that we're in uh, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is meant to be a great comfort and calling to the church. And 
it is so powerful. Very often in the study of Revelation, this passage is it's just glossed over, passed over. This is a powerful, powerful instruction to the church, especially for us today. Before we open this word, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, as your priests gathered before you, a congregation of priests, that you've, that's what you've called us to be. You've called us to take the gospel out into the world as prophets, to live out the gospel. But you told us to come and bring the world in our prayers, bring our neighbors and family and friends. Father, we thank you for the answered prayer, the answered prayer, the way that you've answered the prayers of your priest at Christ's covenant in these last few months. And this morning we bow before you and thank you for what you did in the life of little Ruthie this week and how you have brought healing. And we pray that you would completely heal her of this disease, Father. Free her from this. We pray for our friend, Dr. John Cruz, that you bring healing to his body, that, Father, whatever this is will be diagnosed. We pray that you would bring relief and comfort to Kaki and to John. And now, our Father, open your word and teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so it will make any difference in our lives, but we pray in these next few minutes that we will hear your voice in our hearts. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. The power of God's word in the secular city. Let's set this in context. We're in the midst of an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. This is part of a pattern. There was a previous interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals. Jesus uses both of these interludes to speak to his church. That's part of the pattern. In the first interlude in chapter 7, he pictures the security of his people. That's the whole message. As he places his seal, his seal of ownership, his seal of protection in the midst of all the wars and famines and epidemics signified by the seals. The interlude in chapter 7 ends with a wonderful picture of God's people that have been sealed home in glory with Christ. In other words, whatever comes in this world, his people are secure in his omnipotent, eternal care. So let's come to the interlude that we started last week that we see in chapters 10 and 11 between the sixth and the seventh seal. It builds on this theme of security. But in this interlude, as we saw last week, he speaks to the church. He speaks to Christ's covenant church about what she should be doing, what we should be doing in the midst of the seals and the trumpets. We live in the midst of them. That's what we've seen. These things take place between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. We saw last week that 
in chapter 10, at the beginning of this interlude, Christ gave two commands to John who represents the church. He's a symbol of the church and he gives two commands. First, he says, eat the word of God, ingest the word of God. And then the second command, speak the word that you ingest, go speak it, go live it to the world. It happened like this, a gigantic angel whose stance spans, gigantic, colossal angel, his stance spans the water and land and held a small scroll. That scroll was the word of God. John is commanded to eat the scroll. You know, that's what we do every Sunday. That's a strange thing to say and eat that scroll, eat that book. But that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing right now. We're ingesting the word of God of God in obedience to what he told the church to do. It's what we do in our Bible studies. And then he told John at the, the last, very last verse of the chapter, he told his church through John to go speak that word that is ingested. It's a, it's inextricably, inextricably entwined with our lives and wherever we go, whatever we're saying out in the world, we're salt and light. It's a part of that. The word of God Reaching the world through us. Well, that's not the end of the interlude. It continues into chapter 11. And in chapter 11, in the interlude, we see portrayed four prophecies. A picture in this interlude, or pictures in this interlude, that portray four prophecies. Let's move immediately to the first prophecy. Now this, remember... It's in, in, all through this. It's inextricably entwined. These prophecies are inextricably entwined with ingesting the word and speaking the word. The first prophecy is this. A prophecy, we see a prophecy portraying the great expanse of the church. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. John, still on earth, is given a measuring rod. It's a, it just completely changes. He goes from eating the word, speaking the word. He gets a measuring rod, a surveying equipment. And he's told, go measure the temple. Like other passages we have seen in Revelation, this scene has a parallel in the Old Testament. When John received this command to go measure the temple, I can tell you what he was thinking. He thought immediately, I've read this before. That's what happened in Ezekiel 40, 41 and 42. Ezekiel accompanied an angel as the angel was measuring the temple. But what was happening then? The object of that vision in Ezekiel was to tell Ezekiel in Israel that even though they were living in exile in Babylon, it seemed that they were totally defeated. Even though Ezekiel had seen Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem completely destroyed, eradicated by Babylon, even though Jerusalem was now and the temple was now in ruin and rubble, God is going to build a magnificent temple. He, he describes this magnificent temple. 
in Ezekiel 40, 41, and 42. In Revelation chapter 11, it's not an angel that is measuring the temple. But John is told to go measure the temple himself. 600 years after Ezekiel saw the temple destroyed, John had seen the temple destroyed in his day. Destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Completely eradicated. So when Jesus told John, go measure the temple, John thought immediately of Ezekiel. Both men had seen the temple wiped out. Jesus was telling John, he was reminding him, saying, John, you're in exile, just like Ezekiel was. You've seen Israel torn down. You've seen the church torn down, John. It seems like you're in exile. You've been taken away from the church. It seems like the church is in danger of being eradicated. But he reminds John, go measure the church. And John would realize, even in that day, before it had reached the ends of the earth, in that day, it reached from India all the way to Spain. It reached into Gaul, down south into Africa. It was immeasurable. John, if you, if you were to say, if you'd been standing there, you'd have said, how could you measure the church? How can I measure the church? She's, she's all over. This is impossible. God was saying to the apostle in the church, you are in exile and you fear for the existence of the church. You need to be reminded, you cannot, you cannot measure her expanse. She's so huge. She's so large. What an encouragement to this. But he's also, and this is beautiful, and we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. This is so beautiful. He says, go measure the temple in the very next very next word, he says, and go measure the altar. The altar. What was the altar? It was a place of atonement. The specific footage of the altar was given in the Old Testament. But the place of atonement for the people of God, where is it? Where is our altar? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. How do you measure the cross to measure the cross, you have to measure the incarnation. How do you measure God becoming flesh? You have to measure the Son of God and Son of Man. You have to measure Jesus as he comes into the courtroom with our sins and stands before the justice of God. How do you measure the justice of the Father being poured out on Jesus for our sins. How do you measure that? How do you measure this table? You can't. There's no height to it. There's no depth. There's no width to it. And then he's not through yet. He says, measure the temple. Then he says, measure the altar. And then he says, measure the people who worship there. Count the people. Again, the number. Would be immeasurable. No. We, on Sunday morning, there's someone out there that, that counts all the people here on Sunday morning. And we'll know after the service how many people were here. We also take names 
You know, we write everybody down. And so if you're not here, we know that. You just need to know. But anyway, so, but think of God saying to us, go measure the church. Go measure my people in China, Russia, Africa, across the continents. It's immeasurable. Remember, God had told Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. Well, several years later, Abraham didn't have his first child. He was beginning to really doubt. And God, he meets with God. God comes to him. And Abraham says, hey, you told me years ago I was going to be a great nation. I don't even have the first child. God says, Abraham, come out here. He points. It's dark. They're in the desert, in the wilderness. You could stars everywhere, no lights to block it out. God says, Abraham, count those stars. And Abraham said, yeah, right. It's impossible. That's exactly what God was doing to John. Measure the temple. Measure the altar. Measure the number of people. And John was saying, yeah, right. Well, he says, don't measure the outer court of the temple. Now, the outer court of the temple was Gentile, was the court of the Gentiles. And we just, I wanted to pass over this, and I can't. The reason he says this, you, you know, don't measure that outer court, is because it no longer exists. It no longer exists in the church. The court of the Gentiles was the outermost court of the temple. And the Gentiles could not go any further, any closer in this temple, any closer to the Lord. They couldn't go into the main sanctuary. When John wrote this, the temple in Jerusalem, as we said, had already been destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD when Rome laid siege to the city and tore down the temple and wiped out the city. But in the new temple that John was to measure, in the temple God was building his church, there was no longer, he said, was saying, John, there's no longer a court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were now in the sanctuary. Look with me at Ephesians 2, 13 to 22. And this is spelled out beautifully. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Let me go back. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near. You've been brought into the sanctuary by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now skip down to verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, that you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? A holy temple to the Lord. Oh, folks, there's no longer a court of the Gentiles. Don't measure that. But he goes on to say, that the area outside the temple that would be that would be Jerusalem. Jerusalem surrounded the temple. That has been given over to the Gentiles, the pagans, to trample underfoot. 
When God was right, when John was writing this, Jerusalem had already been destroyed. The trampling had begun. He said they'll trample the city for 42 months. 42 months or 1,260 days or three and a half years, they all mean the same thing. Folks, I'm going to say this several times in this message. You must not try to make those years fit a literal, definite time in history. It's simply a symbol of a period of time. In this case, it is shorthand for a, pe a period of time that is very, very oppressive. So these first three verses of chapter 11, and we'll come back to that later. So these first three verses of chapter 11 depict God building his temple, the church, throughout the world. The immensity of the church cannot be measured. The expanse of the church cannot be measured. It is built by the church ingesting the word of God and declaring the word of God in the world. It's that simple. That's what that's saying. So we have a prophecy portraying the great expanse of the church. Secondly, we have the second prophecy is a prophecy portraying the power of the testimony of the church. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> and I will grant authority to two, to, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from them from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, God summarizes his church bringing his word to this fallen world. That's what's happening. These are prophets. They're preaching like he told John to do to the kings, to the nations. They're living out their lives before them. And they're symbolic lives of two prophets, of two witnesses. They, they will be clothed in sackcloth, for they preach. That's a, that's a, a mourning, uh, a grieving cloth or dress, dressed in sackcloth. Why? They were preaching repentance. When John the Baptist came preaching, what was his first word? Repent. When Jesus came preaching, what was his first word? Repent. Well, these two witnesses that we see in this passage are called the two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, it will help you to understand when you read two olive trees, two lampstands, those are the two witnesses. That's what he says right here. Those are the two witnesses. But what does this mean? Like so many other symbols, just like that first part was taken after Ezekiel 40, 41, and 42, this is directly related to Zechariah chapter 4. And we're going to look at that right now. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2. And he said to me, said to Zechariah, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know? 
what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was with Ezra and Nehemiah, and he was essential. God was using Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel to build Jerusalem, to build back the temple in their day. And he said, look closely at this word. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. That's what these, this lampstand is in olive trees. It's the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now skip down to verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? He said, no, my Lord. I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the, holy, of the whole earth. The lampstand, now listen, the lampstand and olive trees in Zechariah represent the power of God in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem during the time of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah. And how did they do it? By the word of God. He said, this is the word of God to Zerubbabel. So Jerusalem will be built, the temple will be built, be rebuilt by the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, that is ex the exact message to John and the church in this interlude in Revelation. The, hostile, the world was hostile around Jerusalem in Zechariah's day. They were hostile. They tried in every way to stop Zerubbabel and Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah. And God says, no, just like in John's day, he was in exile. He was cut off from the churches and the churches were being persecuted. How was the church being built? How would Jerusalem be built? How would the church be built? It would be by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The two lampstands are the word of God. Those lampstands are fed by oil. How, how do they get oil to burn? How do they get oil into the lamps? They come from the olive trees. Throughout Scripture, God's word is described as what? A lamp. It's described as a light. That's simply what this is. What empowers the lamp and oil from the olive tree? What empowers God's word? The Holy Spirit. This is not John Sartell. It better not be just John Sartell speaking this morning. If this is not the Holy Spirit speaking, we might as well say the benediction and go home. That's our prayer. I, I hope you pray every Weak for Christ's covenant that the word of God will go forth from here. I, if I'm not preaching, if we're not preaching the word of God, how can you ingest it? How can we ingest it? It has to be preached to be ingested. And that's what's wrong with so many churches. It's not being preached. And so it can't be ingested. And the church cannot grow. The church cannot be empowered unless the word of God is spoken and, the Holy, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. The two witnesses represent the witness of the church in every age. It's not just, a, please don't take them and say, well, this is going to happen just before Jesus returns. Don't do that. 
Just like all the, the trumpets and the seals all talk about the period of time, the wars, the famines, all the th earthquakes, all the things that will happen between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, it's the same thing here. The church during this time, ingesting the word of God and speaking the word of God to the world. This is the power of the church. This is how we grow. This is how we change the world around us. Look at verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. This is the power of God's word in the secular city. This is in a very secular world that is going on, whether it was in the day of Rome or whether it was today. And the two witnesses are modeled after Elijah and Moses. Elijah prayed and spoke, and what happened? Fire fell from heaven. He prayed, and what happened? God shut up the heavens as he prayed for a drought. Moses struck the Nile, turning the waters to blood and bringing every kind of plague down on Egypt. That's simply, don't make this complicated. That's simply the church bringing the word of God to the voice of God in power to the secular city. What did Jesus tell his disciples the church would do? Go back to it. It's one of the most powerful, powerful pictures in the New Testament. In Matthew 16, verse 18, and I tell you, they had just made that biblical word of God confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. I tell you on this rock, I will build my church. He'll build it. And the gates of hell shall not stand against it. People, gates don't attack. Gates, gates are defensive. The picture here is the church progressing to the ends of the earth and the church gets to the gates of hell and not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what this is. Do we ever need to hear this in the church today? The church today, evangelicals today, and I'm an evangelical, and I've been guilty of this. We all have been. The evangelical church is guilty of saying, well, we've got to find out what works. We've got to be mission-minded and get out there and speak to the world in the world's language. Do you really think that's what John the Baptist and Jeremiah did? Do you think they sat down and said, you know, we've got to speak in the, in the, to the culture of our day, in the language of our day? John the Baptist came to Israel and he looked at the priest, he looked at the Pharisees, he looked at the Sadducees, and you know what he said? You brood of vipers! Boy, that was really relational, wasn't it? That's what he did. He came with the word of God. People, we have too long in the church looked for what works. What will we do? What, what will give us more numbers? Christ's covenant has got to be concerned about one thing. What is the word of God and is it going to be preached? And is it going to be lived out in our lives? It can't be ingested into a church where it's not being preached. So we have a prophecy portraying the great expanse of the church. We have a prophecy portraying the power of the testimony of the church. 
Thirdly, a prophecy portraying the utter destruction of that testimony by the world. And this is so sad. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at the dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a trouble, had been a torment to those that dwell on the earth. A demon beast comes from that bottomless pit. Remember in the trumpet, the fifth and sixth trumpets, the the bottomless pit was opened and all this demonic power came out of it. Well, out of that same pit comes this great beast. In the, this is, uh, this is straight out of Daniel chapter 7. And I just don't have time to go into it this morning. But Daniel foretold in his prophecy about a horrible time in Israel when the temple would be desecrated, when there would be a great apostasy. And it was during the time of uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And this, this is modeled after that. And it says their bodies will be put on display in the city. They'll be killed by this great beast. And their dead bodies, we read, will lie in the street. The great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, and there where their Lord was crucified. It is one city, folks. It's symbolic. A city that is symbolic of Sodom because Sodom was a city of sexual perversity. It's a city modeled after Egypt, a country of oppression of the people of God. It's a city that was full of the hatred. For Jesus, it's where he was crucified. It's not speaking of Jerusalem. It's not just one city at one place and one time. It is one city who represents, it is a city that represents sexual perversity, oppression, and hatred for Jesus. Leon Morris, one of the great, great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, said that it represented no city, no one, no one city, and every city of the secular world. To us, I would say, it represents the modern secular city, the city without God. That city that will rejoice at the death of the church that says we've had enough of Christ, we've had enough of the gospel, we've had enough of the word of God. At the death of the prophets, they would not let them be buried. They partied, they rejoiced. Now, in summary... Don't try to make, as I said, three and a half years or 1,260 days or 42 months a literal three and a half years at some point in history. Don't try to make the two witnesses two definite men that appear one time before the return of Jesus. I read recently where people at the last half of the 1900s, uh, said that these two witnesses uh, were... Dwight L. Moody and Ira Sankey. Please don't do that. Don't go there. Know this. Don't go preaching. Don't go searching for olive trees linked to lampstands by pipes. Don't do that. 
At certain places and certain times in the history of the church, the church has been so persecuted that she seemed to be non-existent, seemed to be eradicated. Think of Russia from 1920 to 1980. Think of China from 1949 to the present days. Those two empires swore to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, swore to destroy the very word of God. Those two empires were fathered by Karl Marx. Karl Marx actively, for all of his life, rebelled against God. He wrote this. This is an amazing statement. Listen to it. I long to take vengeance. This is Marx. I long to take vengeance on the one who rules from above. The idea of God is the keynote of a perverted civilization. Belief in God, faith in God, is a perversion, he says, in a civilization. And then he goes on. It must be destroyed. Like the people of the secular city in Revelation celebrated and rejoiced at the death of the two witnesses, Marx would dance on the grave of Christ. He would dance at the grave of the church as a whole. And I think this is most dangerous. I think much of the evangelical church and many moralists in our society are totally ignorant about the extent and purpose of the evil that is at the heart of our secular antichrist culture. Don't be naive about it. And then there's this good ending after the prophecy portraying the utter destruction, the testimony of the world, a prophecy portraying the resurrection of the church. After several days, God speaks and these two prophets are raised up. In the last two millennia, we've seen the church left for dead over and over and over again. It's been left for dead in Russia. It's left for dead in China. In much of Europe, it's been left of dead. John tells us in his letter that the spirit of the Antichrist is in every age. We will see in the next few chapters that just before the return of Christ, there will be one last Antichrist. One last effort by Satan to destroy the church of Christ. But that effort will also end with what? What happened right here in chapter 11. A resurrection. A resurrection to glory. Well, one story and we're done. Lord Reith was a Scotsman. He was the first director general of the BBC. A group of young avant-garde intellectuals were preparing a program to be aired on the BBC, and they came to meet with Lord Reith. He asked them, what's the purpose of your program? And they said proudly, our program has the general thesis and title, giving the Christian church a decent burial. Now, Reith was a Christian. He frowned big, thick eyebrows. And he stood up and he said, young men, the church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC. 
Rome tried to stop her, and he could not. In the 20th century, three great empires lined up directly against her, the Third Reich, Russia, China. And the church advanced in spite. God over and over again raised her from the dead. How can she survive? There's only one answer. You ingest the word of God. And whether you're an individual or whether you're a family or whether you're a city or whether you're a church, you speak the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's time to come to his table in the great, great hymn written by one Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the great, great preachers of the Christian church. Amidst it, our beloved stands is a hymn introducing us and calling us to the Lord's table. Hymn number 427. Let's stand as we sing. Thank you. 